In Luke 16, Jesus tells this parable of a shrewd manager. Now, when Jesus tells parables, usually he has bad character and at least one good character who is lifted up to show us how to live. What's unique in this parable is that all the characters are evil, so there's really no clear model. We shouldn't strive to be morally like any one of these people in the parable. Now, what's interesting is it begins with an owner of a property and he fires the manager because it was rumored that the manager was wasting the owner's possessions. Now, managers back then were also called stewards, meaning that they did not own the property. Instead, they were just tasked at taking care of it. Now, once this manager realizes that he's going to be fired, he brings in two people who are in debt to the owner. One guy owed 900 gallons of oil and the manager slashed the debt in half. Now another guy came in who owed 1,000 bushels of wheat, which was about 30 tons of wheat, and his debt was slashed to only 800 bushels. Now these debts were huge, but apparently the manager had the authority to collect or, in this case, not collect debts. The manager cheated his owner out of 450 gallons of oil and 200 bushels of wheat, but why? Well. Because since he's about to be fired, he slashed the debts of these guys, and now he's going to be welcome in their home. So rather than being homeless or having to do day labor, now all of a sudden he has options where he's going to be welcomed into these people's homes. Now, what's really interesting is that the owner actually commends the manager for his shrewdness. And by the way, so does Jesus. Why? Well, let's have Pastor John tell us. So there you go, a little bit about managers, and that's enough today for our Historical Minute. Awesome. Open up our hearts and our minds to hear your word and to have the power by your Holy Spirit to put these words into practice. Well, that was from last week, so I think we're already past it, right? So I don't have to go back and talk about that again, do I? That was really, truly a tough parable. We talked about different um, methodology ideas because Jesus also commends um, this individual as well. But why would he commend somebody who is evil? And, and so there's a lot of confusion about that one. It's one that... Um, to be honest with you, I've struggled with for, for most of my life as far as trying to figure that out. And, but the bottom line is, the very last part, right before we start our section for today, it says you cannot serve God and money. And so it comes right down to it, we can only have one God. And that's going to kind of carry into this next section here as far as the love that the Pharisees had for money. And we live in a world of people that have all kinds of love for money. And the Bible talks about that the, the, you know, money is the root of all kinds of evil. But really it's not money itself is evil, it's what we do with money. And I just think our forefathers were so brilliant that in all our currency, all our coins, what does it say? In God we trust. And the bottom line is we're to trust God above money. And I guarantee you it's going to happen in the very near future that our secular world is going to try to get those words off of our currency and coins. I just, just watch. I, just, I guarantee it's going to be coming. We've got to fight to keep it on because it's a great reminder that God is more important than money. And so we're picking up today in chapter 16, verse 14 of Luke. And it begins, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things 
and they ridiculed him. And so Jesus was addressing them, and he's really kind of hitting their hot topic buttons. And it says, you know, Luke makes it very clear, they love money. You know, these guys were all about getting money from people. You know, for example, when Jesus went into the temple on Holy Week there, and, and he turned over all the tables of the money changers. Why did he do that? You see, they were turning the temple into a shopping center. What they were doing was they were selling the items needed for sacrifice, for bulls and, and goats and lambs and pigeons and all different things that were to be sacrificed. And they were charging sometimes 10 times the normal price. And the ones who were leading this racket were the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The, the church workers were the ones doing this. And Jesus is so angry because they're ripping the people off. You see, they're, they're charging for the sacrifice. And when the sacrifice was made, guess who got the sacrifice? The priests. You know, some was burned, but most of it was salvaged. They went back to the priests. So they, they're double dipping. They're making all kinds of money doing this type of thing. And Jesus can see so clearly their love for money over their love for God. It goes on. Then he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You know, Jesus is not afraid to call them out. And I think that in this day and age, we need to learn to be a little bit more straightforward with people, okay? I think we live in a society sometimes where we're, especially as Christians, we're, we're afraid to just maybe speak up and speak the truth. And I think we need to do that. We've got to do it in love, okay? But we need to stand up for what is right. And if somebody wrongs you, it's important to, you know, to approach them and talk to them. And these people were supposed to be representing God in the church, and they were so far from the truth, and Jesus would let him have it. He's not afraid to be blunt with them. But at the same time, it's important to realize that Jesus still loved them. Do you realize that? Because Jesus loves who? Everybody. And sometimes love has to be tough. In this situation, he's saying, you know what? You're more concerned about what people think than what God thinks is true. Because their whole thing was controlling people. Their whole thing was manipulating people and get what they want from people for themselves and putting people into bondage. True Christianity sets us free. These Pharisees were all about laws and regulations and controlling people for their own gain. It goes on. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. That's kind of another confusing verse right there. What's that saying? I see two things. Number one, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, uh, the church of the day was forcing themselves into it in a negative way because they want to shut Jesus down. Because they were concerned about losing control. They didn't like what he was all about. He didn't like all, they didn't like all these people flocking to Jesus. At the same time, another group was flocking to Jesus. And who were they? Who was this group? The tax collectors, the sinners, the people that were on the outside. They're finding their way in. And Jesus is hanging out with them. 
as he's hanging out with them, what are the Pharisees and Sadducees doing? They're looking at him and scowling at him, saying, why do you welcome sinners and tax collectors and evil people? Why are you hanging out with them? The more I study the Bible, the more I realize how God has such a special heart for those that are struggling out there. And we're going to see that even more as this um, whole theme kind of progresses through the next chapter and a half. Verse 17. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And so here's Jesus. He's bringing the gospel. But he's not doing away with what? The law. Okay? The law still applies. The law never goes away. Yes, there's a moral law, there's a ceremonial law, the civil law. The moral law is, is timeless. Okay, some of the ceremonial laws and civil laws are maybe more for the custom of the time. But the moral law applies completely. The Ten Commandments. And I want to stop right now. Okay, I'm a fanatic about this. Do you all have your Ten Commandments memorized? Okay. What's the first commandment? You... Very good. You should know the guys before me. The second commandment. Yep, you should misuse the name of the Lord your God. The third commandment. You're doing really good, Jan. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Okay? And these three talk about loving God. Okay? And the next seven talk about loving your neighbor. The fourth is children in particular. What is it? Yep, honor your father and your mother that it may be well with you, you may live long on the earth. The fifth commandment, you shall not murder. Okay? The sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The seventh commandment, you shall not steal. The eighth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the ninth and tenth, do not covet. And these encompass almost all areas of life. And we are bound to these, folks. And Jesus is not dismissing them at all. He came to fulfill them for us. But we should still be living by them, not because we have to, but because we want to. And so he's saying the law still stands, but then he's going to take a topic that they were kind of abusing, in particular the Pharisees. It says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now what was happening in that day and age, they were going back to Deuteronomy. And there's a word there um, in that section. In fact, it's Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Go back there and read it for you. And what they were doing was they were misusing and kind of changing the meaning behind this commandment. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then he finds no favor in his eyes because... He has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house. This was a Mosaic law, okay? And so what they were doing is, you know, finding something indecent about her, there were two schools of thoughts with the Pharisees. One was called the school of Shemai, which the only indecent thing she could do that could facilitate divorce was she cheated on him and was with somebody else, Okay? But another school of thought was called the Hillel school of thought. And this is what the Pharisees were following. And they felt they had the right to determine what an indecent thing was. 
So if she cooked a bad meal, he could say, you know what? That's an indecent act. Get out of here. I'm going to go find me another one. This was actually happening. And they were dismissing one wife after another and just taking new wives. And Jesus is calling them out on this because in their mindset, um, adultery was a very, one of the worst sins in their scale of sins. But he's calling them adulterers because they were taking one wife after another. You know, the point Jesus is making here is marriage is supposed to be very important, okay? And I also want to make something very clear. There's two people in this room today. There's some that are married or some that may have been divorced. But there is no unforgivable sin except for denying who? Jesus. Sinning against the Holy Spirit. There's forgiveness. And so I want you to realize that, but for those who are married, I want to encourage you to focus on your marriages, okay? And for those who are single or those who are maybe divorced, be very selective. And if you ever get back into a marriage situation or if you haven't been married, make sure you pick the right person and make sure you do it the right way. There's God and then there's the relationship of marriage. It's important. At the same time, we have a God who does forgive. So, and I realized it myself. A number of years ago, I went through a divorce. It was the most difficult thing I think I ever went through in my life. And I went and got a lot of counsel. I went to three different counselors. There were also pastors um, to get advice, get direction. Even the district was working with me. And, and it was difficult. It's not something that I, I wanted, okay? It's something that was really, really challenging. And I went to, at one point I met with the district president. And I said, what should I do? Because I was at a large church. And he says, you know what, John? You got to, you know, I was taking a sabbatical. He says, you got to go back to your church and let them minister to you. And I went back to the church, and he was right. There were some people in the church that I kind of felt, I've been here for a lot of years, some people I felt that maybe they didn't like me very much. <laughs> um, and I thought, this is our chance to really kind of dig a knife in my back. There were some of the first ones that came to me and said, you know what, John? We're praying for you. And we went through a divorce, and, and we've remarried, and, and you know, God has really blessed us in our second marriage. And so at the same time, though, I just, I just want to encourage... All of us here never have to go through that type of thing, okay? Because God wants marriage to be held very sacred. But again, too, there is forgiveness, and we have that ability to move on. But I know for myself, I never want to have to go through what I went through. I pray none of you have to go through that either. Moving on. The rich man of Lazarus. This is a parable that is only found in Luke. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. A couple things I want to point out here. Remember Lydia in the Bible? She made what color of fabric? That means she was very what? Rich. <laughs> because purple fabric cost a ton of money. And it was very difficult to make um, in that day and age. And so he clothed in purple, which was very you know, expensive, fine linen. He didn't just feast, he sumptuously feasted every single day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. By the way, of all the parables of Jesus, this is the only one where a character has a what? Name, okay? Everyone else has never named. Here he has a name, Lazarus. Covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. 
Okay, so he's just waiting for scraps. And by the way, how would stuff fall from the table? You see, they had multiple courses, and they would take bread, okay? And they would actually, between courses, they would actually wash their hands with the bread, okay? Like, like towel off on it, and then take the bread and just throw it. That's what the dogs, that's what Lazarus was hoping to get, some of this bread that fell off the table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This guy was having a rough life. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. Stop there for a second. So they both die. Okay. The poor man Lazarus goes where? To heaven. Abraham's side. And Abraham is visibly seen there, okay? And so when Jesus says, you know, the Sadducees, I am the, I am the God, or God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because Abraham's in heaven, okay? He's, the Sadducees didn't believe in, in eternal life. The Pharisees, by the way, did. And so he's in heaven, and the rich man now is in hell, Okay? And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his fingers in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So is hell a good place? No. Okay. He's in anguish. He's miserable. All those years of luxury, having things so good. But during that time, he had no regard for, for really anybody else, except for maybe his friends who ate with him. He didn't even have any regard for Lazarus, this poor guy that was right in his area that was starving. But now he's in misery. And Lazarus is what? He's in glory. He's in complete glory. And Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may be able, and none may cross from there to us. For the longest time on TV, there was a show called Crossing Over. Ah, not according to this. Okay, you can't cross over, right? And so you got to realize, first of all, this is a parable, and it's still making some very important points, that, that heaven and hell, that there's a chasm between that cannot be crossed. You can't go from hell to heaven, and you can't go from heaven to hell. And so the rich man, he's locked into hell. He can't get out, Okay. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. All of a sudden, maybe for the first time in his life, the guy is having what? Compassion, concern. He's concerned about his five brothers that are still alive. He doesn't want them to go to hell. A voice crying out from hell. I don't want the people I love to come here. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Okay, so you know, 
basically, you know, Moses, you know, it's Abraham saying that, that they have the word of God. These people have the word of God to refer to. And he said, no father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The beauty of this parable is incredible, the way that Jesus kind of at the end lays out what? What he's going to do. He's going to die and he's going to what? Rise and they're still not going to believe, which is true, right? They're still going to reject. And so there's this chasm between heaven and hell. You can't cross over and you can't go from, from heaven or hell back to where? Earth. So here's a question for you. Are our loved ones watching us right now? I don't know. <laughs> I hope not. Because <laughs> I don't think that would be heaven. I really don't know if that would be heaven. Unless they can see only good things. But a lot of people say, well, when people pass away, they're like an angel. They're an angel. No, angels are created beings. Okay? Our loved ones are in heaven and they're experiencing incredible joy and glory. And there's a lot of things we don't understand about heaven and hell, but we do know they're real places. And God is very clear in his word. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. But if somebody goes to hell, whose fault really is it? It's their own. Everybody's invited to the party. Everybody's invited to be in heaven. And if people keep rejecting the invitation in the end, and they want no part of God, in the end, that's what they get. It's a terrible tragedy. And we could be thinking, you know what? That rich man, he had it coming to him. He got what he deserved. I hope we can never think like that. If anything, what should we feel? Bad for that person. Okay? Because God wants us to learn to love all people. And God wants all people to be saved, but he's chosen us to be the ones, to be the ambassadors, to share that. A number of years ago, when I was um, at Christ Church as the senior pastor there, had a neighbor across the street. Her name was Rose. And she was from a Jewish background, and we became really good friends with her. And I kept thinking, you know what? I really want to share with her. I really, I wanted to share more about Jesus with her. And, and time went by, my life was so busy. And, and one day she said to me, I'm, I'm going to have bypass surgery. And I've seen, I've known hundreds of people that bypass surgery. Everyone made it through. But guess what? She didn't make it. And it really hit me. It really hit me. I wish I wouldn't have been so busy. I wish I would take more time for my neighbor. You know, and I, I just, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I never want, I want to judge where, who's in heaven, who's in hell, because I'm still convinced, I said this before, we're going to get there someday. We're going to see people, it's like, how did you get here? You know, complete surprise. But I, I believe that God is so loving and forgiving. He never gives up. He keeps working on people. But the point being here for us, we're the ones that should go and talk to this guy's five brothers. That's our calling. That's what God wants us to do, to be those ambassadors, to speak the truth to these people out there and let people know about Jesus. And, and again, my heart has been really heavy lately. When I saw that, that, that article by, from, came from, from Fox News about the situation that's going on in our church today, that 30 years ago, two-thirds of Christians were a part of a Christian church. And now one-third, 30 years later. I've been a pastor for 33 years. And I guess I've seen that. And so that means in the last 30 years, 100 million Christians have left Christian churches. 
And we need to start wrapping our brain around that, figure out what are we going to do about that? What's it going to take to turn things around? And I think the key for us is just to keep being active out there. And the challenge is this. The longer that we're in a church, almost all of our friends are church people, right? Is that what happens? How do we keep contact with people out there that don't know Jesus? That's why I think it's important to volunteer, to get out there and, and be involved in different ways um, in the community. Let's move on. Chapter 17. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him to, if a millstone was hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. God hates sin. Because God is love. You have love and you have sin. God hates sin because God is love, but God still loves sinners. But he also gets really angry when people lead others into temptation. What does that mean? Maybe some person says, hey, try this drug. It's, it's really cool. So you're not going to get addicted. Just try it. And before they know it, they're completely addicted. Or a teenage boy that pressures a teenage girl to do something she's not supposed to do. The list can go on and on. We should not be leading people into temptation. God hates that. In fact, a lot of news lately. The Pope has worked on changing some words in the Lord's Prayer. Have you all caught that? Have been watching that on the news? Okay. Um, actually, so think about it. Okay, lead us not into temptation are the words that we have currently. All right? Lead us not into temptation. If misunderstood, could sound like what? That God can lead us into temptation, which is not the case. God never leads us into temptation. There was a time in history where this was clearly understood. I think what the Pope is trying to do is to make it more understandable. And his, his words are, do not lead us to fall into temptation. Do not lead us to fall into temptation. It's kind of just changing the words around a little bit, but it's, it's different. We never like change, right? Because change just really bugs us. I know that when I first came here, um, we were trying to use a more contemporary version of the Lord's Prayer. I could tell it was just really riling up a lot of people because even when we were doing the contemporary version, people were still doing the old version because we just were adverse to change. But at the same time, I think it's important for us to always, you know, I'm not sure if I fully agree with making that kind of change, but at the same time, I can see what he's trying to do because sometimes people misunderstand the wording of certain things. Three, pay attention to yourselves, okay? That's important. Explanation point there. Pay attention to yourselves. That's huge. Because so often, we're not paying attention to ourselves. We're paying attention to who? Everybody else. Reminding everybody else's business. Because we don't want to have to deal with ourselves. The most important thing in life, one of the most important things is to observe yourself. Think about what you're thinking about. Okay? We just don't like to do it so often. It's hard. But the more that we observe ourselves and the more that we catch ourselves in the midst of doing stupid things or thinking stupid thoughts, the more we can begin to change in the right way. You can't change until you see your own problems. And once you see them, then you can start changing. 
And so often we're blinded to our weaknesses. We're blinded to our sin. We're blinded to our addictions. And so I think it's really important for us to take heed here. The first person to observe is ourselves. And so he says that before he goes to the next section. If your brother sins, rebuke him. But first you do what? You observe yourself, okay? And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now this goes back, this morning we talked about accountability. We need to hold each other accountable. We need to, to help one another. If you see somebody going in the wrong direction, you love that person, the best thing to do is what? Talk to them. And sometimes just ask questions. How are you doing? What's going on in your life? You know, you've got to be careful how you do it. It's got to be done in a manner of love. But we need, you know, to lead people on the right path. Be there for one another. At the same time that they sin against you and they ask for forgiveness, how many times are you supposed to forgive them? It says seven times, okay? Now the, he's actually still talking also to the Pharisees and Sadducees, still taking this all in too. Their thing was three times. You know, Jesus has taken it times two plus one, but actually more than that because seven is a number of fulfillment. Seven is a number of infinity. It doesn't mean seven times. It means forgive them infinity if they keep asking for forgiveness. And by the way, if you can't forgive people, what happens? You make your life miserable, okay? You know, we've been talking about blessing on Sunday mornings. And sometimes to receive God's blessing, we have to get all the garbage out of us. Because we're so filled with junk sometimes and unforgiveness. And I know too many people that are living in anger and inability to forgive others or inability to forgive themselves. And so one person to forgive too is ourselves. I'm not sure if you're in that category. Maybe some things have happened in your life that you know, are really traumatic. Maybe you had a really rough childhood. Maybe you did some things that were really bad at some point. You've got to forgive yourself too. This applies to you as well. God forgives you. If you can't forgive yourself, it's hard to move on. You're stuck. If you can't forgive others, you're stuck. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know, Jesus is making something very clear. He's not trying to be mean there. He's saying, you know what? I want you to have a great life. And to do that, you need to forgive. Let it go. Give it to me. Verse 5. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What does that mean? All things are possible with God. Okay? Where Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. If we have faith, guess what? Anything's possible. Does God do miracles? You better believe it. Why does he do more? Maybe sometimes maybe we don't believe he can do it. Okay? We are looking at life through our own lenses, through our own human things. And so often I see, even with churches that sometimes I, I work with, I, I see them set goals that are so low, like human goals. I see here in a church, our church, I think, really sets high goals. And we should set goals that go above what is even possible because when it happens, we say, look what God did. 
Look what he did. With faith, all things are possible. I'm going to do the last part here. We're going to, take a, we're going to end it at this next section. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at, at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is a hard saying, isn't it? What's the point? After all that Jesus has done for us, okay, our full heart and desire should be to do what in return? To serve. To ceaselessly, unendingly serve him and to serve one another. That's our calling. That's our duty. Not because we have to, but because... He wants us to. And the more that we think about who God is and what he's done, the more we cannot help but just realize, I could never thank him enough. I owe him everything. And so the point being here is another call to discipleship. It's about serving. And a reminder here too that that word so often used is that word doulas, a bond slave. And a doulas was somebody who's set free by their master and their freedom they give themselves back to the master and saying, you know what? I surrender myself back to you for free. I want to serve you the rest of my life. I will do whatever you want me to do. That's what we're called to do. I know we're human beings and sometimes that's tough. But the more that we serve God and serve others, the more free we become. The more we find purpose and meaning in this life. No questions I see coming up here, so let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And sometimes your word can be challenging, but Lord, your word is true. And Lord, help us to submit ourselves to your word. You know, so often in the world today, people just want to make up their own rules, and it's not working. You are about love, and you love all people, and you love us. And we thank you, Jesus, you showed us the ultimate example of what serving looks like, that you went to a cross to die for our sins, and you rose again, and you're with us all the time, and you love us. This freedom we have in you, Lord Jesus, help us to grow as servants. Not because we have to, but because we want to. And we pray more and more that you work through us and through our church, that we can serve this world, that we can open our eyes to the Lazaruses of this world that are hurting out there, and to reach out to them with your love. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.